You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. All right, I want you to join me then, if you will, in the book of Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament. Please don't be afraid of Google or, or the table of contents. Uh, don't be afraid. This is maybe one of the first times you've opened a Bible. Praise God for that. Um, but if you've got a device, make your way there. Um, but we're going to be in the last, uh, the last prophetic word of the Old Testament. And, and we're going to be walking through it over the next four weeks as we observe the season of Advent, this, this season where Christians historically have intentionally reflected upon our waiting for God to come and make all things new in Christ. And, and in that sense, Malachi is the last of the prophetic books of the Old Testament. Now, chronologically, it might not be the very last thing written in the Old Testament. It's, the Old Testament is organized not necessarily chronologically. It's got the Pentateuch, the Torah, the law first, and then it's got the prophets and then the writings as, as separate categories. This is one of the 12, the minor prophets. And, and while it's, pro, it's possible that Ezra and Nehemiah uh, are, are likely contemporaries of Malachi and may have written the, the last word of the Old Testament, this is the last prophetic word before 400 years of silence before Jesus comes as the word of God made flesh. And so there's two things I want us to see here. This is the last word of, of prophecy before an extended period of silence. And I, I want you to reflect even the weight that that, that carries with it, right? Have, have, you ever ex, have you ever experienced this with someone who gives you like the last goodbye, the last word, and, and those last little words before a long time being apart seem to weigh the most, don't they? They mean something when, when someone says, hey, this, this is the last word I'll say on this. This is a final word for this chapter, for this season, or for this period of time. The second thing I want us to see is this is the, the Bible's way of preparing us for the coming of Jesus. This is the, the Bible's prophetic word to prepare us for the coming of Jesus. And so it's, a, it's an, a helpful, as we saw for the last several weeks, it's a helpful resource of what it means to live in exile, longing for Jesus to come back. But it is a helpful tool for us in a season of Advent as we repent, we look to our needs and declare our desperation for Jesus to come to be with us and for us. Emmanuel, God in the flesh with us. So we're going to read the first chapter together, thinking on this as the last words of Old Testament prophecy and also the preparation for the coming of Jesus. Beginning in verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great 
is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now, entreat the favor of God that it may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, we will show favor to will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to the setting, or to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Verse 1, the word of the Lord to his people by Malachi. I pray that that's true for us. I want you to see in this first chapter an invitation to reflect on the word of God and the love of God, the electing, choosing love of God, and, and even see that that love received is always responded to with devotion and honor And specifically for us, this devotion and honor as a response to God's love will be shared with the nations. You see, how we give and receive God's word and God's love and how we respond in honor and how that is spread is is the central theme of this first chapter. So Malachi is a prophetic word to a group of people who historically have come back from exile. Remember, that's where we were as we pick up from Lamentations. Several generations after they've returned from exile, they come back to Jerusalem. And as you read Nehemiah and 
And uh, some of the other small, uh, uh, even some of the other 12 of the minor prophets, they, they rebuild the city and they rebuild the temple. But, but the first time they built the temple was at the height of prosperity. King David and King Solomon were leading uh, the, the nation of Israel and they had wealth, they had, they had respect, and they had the ability to make a beautiful kingdom, palace, and, and even temple. And we lamented the loss of those things through the book of Lamentations. But a, a generation after exile, they come back to rebuild and, and a couple generations later, they've settled back into a rebuilt temple. But the temple they rebuilt was rebuilt at the bottom of their economic ladder. They didn't have prosperity. They didn't have resources. And so Malachi is writing a word to a group of people who are disappointed with the way that things are. They were disillusioned about life. Malachi is quoted by Luke and by Jesus and even by Paul, we'll even see today. And it comes at us, I think, in a timely fashion. We are a self-centered people. Now, you won't hear me say this in the tone of gloom and doom, like somebody like, we're, we're more self-centered than we've ever been. Maybe, but I think the book of Malachi re- invites us to reflect that we're always self-centered. We worship the self. And so one of the ways that we know we worship the self, and we see this in different places at different times, but one of the ways we can tell we worship the self now, if you listen closely in culture, is the way that we exalt what's, what we would just describe as authenticity. You heard that? That's the sin. Don't be inauthentic. Be authentic. Share your truth. As long as it's sincere, it's, then it, it can be heard. Be authentic. But authenticity only scratches the surface of the deeper things. You could authentically be a jerk. You could be authentically wrong. You can be authentic and be completely out of touch with reality. You could be as honest with yourself and and still be absolutely deceived about what's going on in the world. And so authenticity, while I'm grateful for it, is only scratching the surface of deeper things. It is a precondition. It is not, friend, ultimate. And what we find here is that we are invited to reflect on the authenticity of our devotion, the authenticity of what we really worship. If we're not careful even now, the this pursuit of authenticity can actually make our gathering, even this morning, all about self-expression. And I want to remind you, the, the, the protective measures that, that protect you from my self-expression is that every single week we open this book. We open our time together with this book. We open it together and reflect on it. We meditate upon it. We sing it, and then we close with it. This is a protective measure that, that protects each of us from just focusing around around self-expression. But in an age that values authenticity and so therefore exalts self-expression, what happens is that what we believe about God is relegated to what is private, ultimately self-focused, and completely abstract. And that's what we want by default. 
Let's talk about God, but in the end, let's, let's not expose what's private. Let's don't get into that. And what I believe in, what I think about God is, is between me and him. Right? Have you ever heard someone say that? Like, only, jo- only God can judge me. And that should be said with fear and trembling, right? Like, you should be like, only God judge, right? That shouldn't be something you say with defiance. Like, only God judges me. Like, yeah, that should terrify you. And so if we essentially exalt self-expression and authenticity, then we will relegate what we believe to what's private, what's self-focused. You've heard me make reference to some research that's happened over the last couple of decades about as we poll most people in America and what they, what they think about religion, they, they, they basically fall into a category of what we describe as moralistic therapeutic deism. That is, it's God is up there and out there, abstract, therapeutic, that I really only like God if he makes me feel good, and moralistic. It basically just kind of like gets an idea of what's good or bad for my life. And we say things in the life of faith about sin, about what we believe. That's none of your business. You can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me how to think. I get to believe whatever I want to about God. And the prophet Malachi stabs at every single one of those inclinations. That God is not a private matter. Although definitely relating to God is personal, God cannot be relegated to the private. God isn't about you. God is about his glory and the hope that spreads to the nations. Did you hear that? Malachi will poke at these things. And so, as we prepare to celebrate the coming of Jesus, Malachi offers, I think, some timely words. Malachi, as a, as a, as a unit, is structured around six disputes, we'll call them. And two of them are seen here. You'll see these, these kind of defiant questions back at God. There's going to be six disputes. And you guessed it, like every single other Old Testament book that I've tried to point this out, those six disputes have a chiastic structure. I don't know if you've been walking through Old Testament books with us for the last few years, you're excited right now. Woo, nerd out, let's do this, right? There's six of them, and they build, that is, chiastically, sort of towards a, a central focus on the middle two. The first and the sixth are around the relationship to God, namely his love and fear. And, and then the, the second and the fifth are, are, are around what we, how we respond to God, namely that whether or not we honor God or whether or not we return to God. And so the third and the fourth is theology in the most practical sense, that these, these disputations, these confrontations, the third and the fourth, confront how we relate to one another. So what we believe about God and how we honor, fear, respond, and return to God is revealed in the way that we relate to one another. And so the first two disputations are just that. They're people mouthing off to God and responding like, who are you? And so here's the, if I could summarize Advent for you and for me, as Malachi puts it, God comes to mouthy, apathetic, and disrespectful people. Praise God for that. Thanks to my fifth grade teacher who would have called me all of those things, God comes to be with and for mouthy, disrespectful, apathetic people. 
And this half-hearted response to God's love that Malachi is confronting is something that I hope would resonate in us deeply. So let's walk through what I think are at least five things happening in chapter 1. We'll, we'll kind of cover the, the first half of the second disputation. The second half is in the first verses of chapter 2. We'll cover that next week. The first theme that jumps out is this introductory phrase. The oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. The word of the Lord. Now this is a phrase that we see throughout the entirety of God's word and the entirety of scripture. God's word is the foundation. God's word is the foundation. We sing the, like, I don't know if you've learned this, I remember learning the, the hymn from John Rippon, How Firm a Foundation. This is from the, the, the late 17th century. How firm a foundation, saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say to you than he hath said to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? The word of God is the foundation. For us, the scripture, God's revelation of himself is the foundation. If God is speaking, we are listening. This is part of the liturgy, if you will, of our gathering even now. What a weird thing, right? You sit while I talk, right? I mean, that, that in, in itself is a, is a strange act, right? And there's probably moments where you're like, I'd like to stand up and say something. And yet, and yet there's kind of this contract in the gathering of the local church where someone stands up, opens the Bible, expounds upon it, exposits some things, and we sit and listen. So don't miss just the very posture that you're in right now. Sitting and listening is in and of itself a foundational and a powerful, a powerful rhythm. The utterances of God, the revelation of God's character in Scripture, the commands, His promises for us, and ultimately the incarnation of God's Word, as John chapter 1 tells us, that comes to be with us in the flesh. The Word of God took on flesh in Jesus. These things are the foundation for everything. God reveals Himself in His law. Let me give you a rundown of how we experience this. Just even briefly, God makes his commands known to his people. Psalm 147 tells us this. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. God's law is to be obeyed. We see the whole last half of Deuteronomy, but Deuteronomy 30 especially. We see examples of disobedience and its consequences as the Bible teaches us, the Scripture speaks. The Word of God is prophecy that predicts the outcome of our decisions. If you do this, this is going to happen. If you do this, God will respond faithfully and predictably in this way. The prophets spoke the words of God. The Word of the Lord came to these prophets. And here's what we see in the first verse as well. Prophetic words are to be heeded, to be listened to. The Word of God, we understand, is what speaks to us in the Scripture. We don't just read a Bible. We get to know, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the author. There's no other book like this where you actually get to know the author personally. The author meets you when you read this book. That's miraculous and mysterious, is it not? The New Testament writings are classified as Scripture as well. They're God-breathed and inspired. They're useful 
It's inspired and true. The scripture is not to be distorted or changed. It must be read publicly, the New Testament tells us. It must be meditated upon. It's the test of orthodoxy, right? You can hear Matthew chapter 22. Jesus answered them, you are wrong. They, remember they asked him, they tried to trick him, and he says, you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So even Jesus is like, look, you're wrong, and the reason you're wrong is because you're misapplying the scripture. It's the basis for any proclamation, either from a pulpit in a gathering like this or even as truth that you share across your dinner table or with your neighbor. Jesus Christ is the incarnate word of God, made flesh. He comes to be God's expression. We ask, what is God like? And God says, this is what I am like. And Jesus comes as God in the flesh. He speaks the Father's words according to the Gospel of John. Jesus Christ's words have sovereign power over disease, right? Over demons, over even the wind and the waves, and even over sin, death, hell, and the grave. The description that the Bible gives us of God's word is that it's true, according to Psalm 33 and John 17. It's flawless, according to 2 Samuel 22 and Proverbs 30. It's infallible, according to 1 Kings 8 and 2 Kings 10. It is eternal, according to Psalm 119, Isaiah 40, and 1 Peter 1. The word of God helps us to understand God's expression even through normal things, like food, like fire. The word of God has power. It's active. It's bringing about things through creation, where there once was nothing, life where there once was death. It governs and maintains the created order. It's held together by, uh, creation is held together by God's word. It's the source of life. It consecrates things that are unholy. It heals, it rescues. The word of God has the power to save. It never returns void. It brings about growth in the kingdom of God and it builds up the church. The word of God is the foundation. In fact, apart from that, the rest of our time together will seem kind of strange, right? Like, what's the point of reflecting on the rest of this if you don't actually open yourself to the possibility that God might speak? And so here's where I get to invite you. If you're not a believer, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I want to invite you. Come with all your skepticism. Come with all your cynicism. In fact, that's exactly who Malachi is written to, a bunch of skeptical, cynical people who mouth off to God. And, and, and I would just say, come with all that. And, and contemplate a mystery, that there could be a God and that God would actually speak to you through this timeless text. Jesus says that this text is something out of which a wise person will bring out treasures old and new. All begins and ends with God speaking. In that sense, Malachi serves in many ways as like the revelation like we would read the book of Revelation in the New Testament. That's how Malachi fits into the Old Testament. In the same way that at the end of Revelation, we see all of God's promises fulfilled in Christ and we long for Jesus to come back and make all things new, so also the end of the Old Testament wraps up with a prophetic word in Malachi where things are wrapped up and people are longing for Jesus to come and make everything new. Move to the second thing. The Lord begins with love. The Lord always begins with love. The very heart of God is motivated by love. Now, it's motivated by a love that's holy, righteous, and different than our love. And notice, even from the garden, that's the question that we wrestle with the most deeply. Sinclair Ferguson, a pastor I, I commend to you, on this, at least on this particular point, since the garden, the voice that the serpent speaks to every heart is this, does your father really love you? 
That was the first doubt stirred up amongst the first people, and it's the doubt that the enemy wants to stir in you and me. Do I matter? Am I worth anything to anyone? Does anyone value me? Does anyone see me? Does anyone hear me? And for the Christian, the answer is a resounding yes. I have loved you. I love the, the tense of that, right? Not just I love you, but this is, this is an ongoing thing. And I have to confess, the enemy's question there to those in the garden haunts me. Am I loved? Am I good enough? Am I valuable? Am I wanted? Romans 5.8 says it this way, While we were still weak, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely, scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to even die. But verse 8, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, before we deserved it, before we had done anything of any merit at all, Christ died for us. I am helped regularly by remembering the cross and the empty tomb to shut the serpent up when he questions whether or not God loves me. And I commend the same to you. Because these were the exact doubts that the people Malachi was speaking to were wrestling with as well. The same as those in the garden. Does God really love us? Is God really good? Is his plan really great? And so, like a good, right? Like a, like a good, insolent child, they respond, how have you loved us? Right? I love you. And, and right, just, like the, like, just like the serpent, and just like many of you, people are like, really? Does he really love me? Could God possibly love me? And so God responds in this disputation, this conversation that seems to be going on as Malachi is speaking, kind of illustrating for them what, what their disobedience is like and their apathy and half-heartedness is like. And, and God responds, Is not Esau Jacob's brother? And many of you are like, huh? <laughs> what? All right, let's, let's go back. Jacob and Esau were, were brothers born of Isaac and Rebekah, Right? Isaac being the, the beloved son of Abraham, who, by God's grace, was called out of paganism to be his, the father of a nation, a nation that would be a recipient of blessing, but a blessing such that all the nations would be blessed through him. And twin brothers were born. And it gets ugly here, right? Just, just see it for what it is. Just, just remember this, this whole the whole next few weeks are, are, are going to feel ugly as we prepare for Christmas, as we reflect through Advent. But I want you to know that's exactly what the Gospels tell us. Those who were in what? Darkness have seen a great light. So reflect, if you can, look into the darkness with me. This is difficult. This is weighty. God has loved, and he says, the way you know I loved you is like, aren't you the descendants of Esau's brother Jacob, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, and Esau I have hated. The Lord demonstrates his love by 
choosing us. God demonstrates his love for us, right? How do I know that God loves us? I know that God loves us because he chooses us. Now, this is going to be a profound theological concept, a doctrine, a doctrine of election that you and I will wrestle with until Jesus comes back. It is a mystery to be apprehended by faith. It is not a concept to be apprehended by intellect. God's ways are above our ways. Good luck. God chooses us. That's the divine mystery. God, and and I don't know, like, God chooses me. God chose me to save me. And here's the thing. If you find yourselves going like, I can't believe that. You, of all people? Exactly. That's the point he's making. Jacob and Esau were twin brothers, and they were both awful. They were terrible. They were fighting in the womb and on the way out of the womb. And the firstborn was Esau. Picture all of like uh, all of the most masculine things you can imagine. That's Esau, it's a big, hairy, outdoorsy kind of a guy, and and he was quite literally his father's favorite. Whereas Jacob, again, literally was a mama's boy, and he wasn't hairy. He was slippery, smooth. His name even means slick, as the idea of like he's 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 kind of. He's kind of a slime ball, that is. He's, he's, he's a trickster. He's a con man. And so one of the first things I want you to reflect on as you think about apprehending God's love in choosing us is it is a mystery to be apprehended by faith that God would choose anyone. So the first thing you're tempted to do, if, if we have right, we have a self-centered, moralistic background, right? Well... Esau must have been a bad guy, and Jacob must have been a good guy, right? Wrong. They were both awful. Even to the point where, like, Esau so disrespected his own family that he sold off his birthright birthright for a bowl of stew to his trickster brother who conned the birthright and blessing out for stew. Now, Now, that's either a really great stew or a really dysfunctional family. Right, like, hey, do you love your family? Not as much as this stew, right? Like, or, or as if to say, like, hey, you know, what's my father's blessing worth? Stew. Do you get the idea? Like, these, these people are not good people. That God would love and care for Jacob or Esau is a miracle of grace. And that's where the Bible starts, that people are undeserving of God's love. When we have the opportunity, we destroy ourselves and others. We will throw anyone under the bus, any opportunity we get. The fact that God would love anyone is a profound demonstration of grace. The church today, like Jacob, like the people Malachi was speaking to, is no different. We are saved only by God's mercy. That he would choose us is a miracle. Genesis 25, the prophecy over them that there are two nations in your womb to Rebekah and two peoples born of you shall be divided and one shall be stronger than the other and the elder shall serve the younger. See this again. Thus says the Lord God in Ezekiel 25, because Edom, that is Edom, the descendants of Esau, we saw that as well, right? You hear them use interchangeably Esau and his descendants, Edom, 
Edom acted revengefully against the house of Judah and is grievously offended in taking vengeance upon them. Now, we remember this from Lamentations chapter 4, right? The, the people of Jerusalem were getting slaughtered, and the Edomites watched. They helped. They took advantage of it, and so they, they had some curse brought upon them. We saw this a few weeks ago. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will stretch out my hand against Edom and cut it off and cut off from it humans and animals, and I will make it desolate. From Timon even to Dadon, they shall fall by the sword. Notice, that's what people deserve. Backstabbing, con artists deserve punishment. And yet, these two twin con artists, these two twin disrespectful brothers are actually an introduction to God's grace. God's love is demonstrated for us that he chooses us. You see this in Romans chapter 9, where this particular verse is quoted, where Jacob represents those who trust the promises of God by faith. And yet Esau represents, in the, in the context of Romans chapter 9, where, where he's confronting people who, who are functionally believing in works righteousness, Esau represents all of the people who live by self-reliance, by self-sufficiency. Now, don't give up on this before the story reaches the revolu- its, its resolution. Don't walk out of the theater before the movie's over, right? This is, this is harsh words. These are harsh words, aren't they? That God would love and that God would hate. Again, d- doesn't, that, doesn't that already kind of like rub wrongly against your own sensibilities? Right? Or do you find yourself like, I, I, I don't believe in a God who would do that, right? And then you're like, oh, shoot. And here we have the Bible that protects you and me from our own personal sensibilities. This is a mystery to be apprehended by faith. It's a mystery. So by all means, intellectually wrestle with this, that God would pick out of the nations an Abraham, that God would pick out of two vile brothers a Jacob, and that God would pick out of death, hell, and the grave your soul and mine. It's a mystery. Profound. To be apprehended by faith. When we apprehend this by faith, when we begin to realize the miracle of God's grace, something happens. When love is received, we respond with honor and devotion. Do you see that in verse 6? It turns to the second disputation. The second disputation towards the leaders, the priests, the people who had charge over God's people. And they were dishonoring God. Why were they dishonoring God? We see, because they didn't actually receive the love of God that he would choose them, that he would continue to care for them. They were disillusioned with the world, and that caused them to doubt the love of God. Ever been there? Ever been disappointed with your circumstances such that you begin to doubt whether there is a God and that God would love you? If you're a Christian in the room, the right and honest response is yes. If you're not a believer in the room, welcome to the honest party. Welcome to the people who are really truthful about the fact that we often doubt God's love. We doubt that God would care for us. And God's response is instead of kicking us out, he draws near to us. They had dishonored God. When love is received, it's responded to with honor. So let me, before we dig into that passage, let me connect it to, to the previous one, right? I told you that, that God elects, God chooses, God chooses to love us. And that is something we respond to in faith. It's something we respond to in joy. It's a mystery. 
Most of the questions you could ask me about that, I can say, well, I don't know. The Bible says this, but I don't know. It is a mystery beyond me. And so it's something we simply receive. It's something we celebrate. And this is a temptation that I, I, I want to, like a temptation arises here that I want to speak specifically to. When we, when we start reflecting on these things, when we start to plumb the depths of these things intellectually, mentally, right, the problem will happen is that we start to figure them out and understand them and become very cold. We receive the love of God through his election, and then we typically, like, you know, push up our glasses and, like, I, under, I know. It. We, we can become very pompous, uh, elitist about this, and that's where Paul comes along and says, I get it, but knowledge really just puffs up, and love is what builds up. And so when we, when we receive the love of God, it isn't meant to be kind of like a, uh, something we, we, we share at a cocktail party to, to win the argument. It's not a gotcha moment that God chooses and loves us. That's not what it is. It's something to be celebrated. I'll give you an example. The minute that that becomes like something you intellectually have mastered, you've lost probably your affection. You've lost probably your excitement over the fact that God would choose to love you. And I don't ever want us to lose sight of that. Let me give you an example. Uh, New Year's Eve uh, will be a, a celebration for my wife and I. Um, New Year's Eve of 2001, I believe, uh, was the first time I approached my wife uh, for a kiss at New Year's Eve, like the, the turn uh, at midnight, and asked her to come hang out with me later and have lunch with me the next day. But it kind of went probably like this. I, w- I walked up to her, and we were uh, gathering with a bunch of friends. Um, that's what we used to do back in the day. We used to get together. <laughs> and, uh, and so walk into this place, and I walk up to her, and, and, uh, and it was probably something like, you know, hey, if you're, not, you know, if you're not doing anything, if it's okay with you, you want to sit down over here at the, at the, at the breakfast table? You want to hang out for a little talk? And, and she was like, yes, right? And, uh, and, then, and then I just sat there kind of like freaking out, just kind of like, ah, I think I'm, I think I'm going to ask her to. I mean, everyone's going to be like probably kissing someone at, at midnight. I'd hate for like some dude to walk up and like, hey. You know, and so this whole time, I'm wait- I, we sat there for like an hour and a half, and I w- keep watching the clock until finally like 11.50, 11.55. I was like, hey, would you, you know, would you? And I, some stupid line of like, can I, would you? <laughs> this, is, this is real. You know, can I borrow your lips for New Year's? I said that. I want you to know this is, a, this is a description, not a prescription. I do not endorse that. I wouldn't recommend it. Joke's on you, she said yes. <laughs> and so then we're, and then we're still talking, and I was like, hey, you know, because you know, I didn't, maybe, maybe I, don't know what she, I don't know what she thought of me. Maybe she's like, well, the, that guy's a slobbery, bad-breathed guy, right? She, and, and I was like, hey, you know, if you're not doing anything, you, you want to hang out with us and eat lunch with, you know, my brother and I tomorrow uh, around lunchtime, right? And she said yes again. And, and so here's the thing. The minute I lose sight of how crazy it was that she said yes to all that, we're in trouble. The minute I start retelling that story in a way like, you know, and, and then I went to the party and I was like, hey, what's up, girl? And right. An entitlement steps in, Right. Like, I deserved, what a clown. Right now, right now, she is thinking that she's, what a clown. Joke's on you, she said yes, right? So, the minute I lose sight of the marvel that she chose me, that's the minute my affection starts to wane and waste away, doesn't it? 
So I want you to see here the same thing is true. That God would choose us. That God would like us, tolerate us, much less delight in us by his grace is a miracle to be apprehended by faith. And when that settles deep in you, that through no merit of your own, by not deserving it in any way, God has loved you, the response is profound honor. Right? And, even, and it's a shared honor. And right now you have honor for my wife. Right? You're like, wow, that's, that's some woman. I can't believe she did that, right? And so verse 6 transitions to the response to God's choosing love. It's honor. When the miracle of God's grace to choose you sets deep in your own soul, you start to honor, your honor and devotion is stirred. And so for the whole, for the end of the chapter is an indictment on the fact that they had dishonored God because they had not received his love. And of course, in Maldi fashion, where have we dishonored you, right? How have we despised your name, they say. And, and what, what follows is, is God offering a, an accusation, a revelation of the ways in which their devotion, how they were living in light of God's love for them, the fact that they would choose, the fact that God would choose them out of exile and give them another chance doesn't stir any affection. It doesn't stir any devotion, and it's visible. And Jesus, excuse, excuse me, and God points this out. Now, if, if you're with me on this, I want to commend to you reflection in Numbers chapter 6, verses 23 through 27. It's a common blessing, the Aaronic blessing, right? May the Lord bless you and keep you, right? And if you follow the language of those verses, you will find the language is almost identical to the language of this second disputation. The language of Aaron and his sons, the language of priests, the language of blessing, the keeping, the language of God's name, 13 times in this passage, the language of light shining in, the language of the face of God, the language of accepting and being gracious, the language of accepting and raising up the face, the language of carrying, the language of the root is seen here, the language of peace, the language of God's name, the language of cursing and blessing, all like this Aaronic blessing. And so Malachi is calling back to this Aaronic blessing to say, remember that blessing and all these components? Look closely and you will realize you are not living in light of God's blessing. And so therefore you are searching for and you are looking for and going to experience a curse. We're meant to see here that when love is received, the right response is honor and devotion. Here's the profound truth in this. The way in which you and I experience the love and delight of God is visible to everyone around us. One of the most important things you should ask is like, not do you think you're a Christian, Ask people around you, do you think I'm a Christian? How do you know? And the disputation that happens here, right, you're not honoring me, and they're like, how have we done this? And then we walk through what is kind of a recap of the sacrificial system, namely that if you want to go back to Numbers, to Deuteronomy, and Leviticus, you'll see the careful detail that these people would live in light of God's atoning forgiveness. And so as they were raising up their animals to 
their livestock to live off of, to be clothed and fed by. They, they would set aside one. They would have this one animal and, and different ones. It could be a pigeon, a turtle dove. It could, be, all right, it could be a lamb, a goat, a bull. These were all necessary for different types of atoning sacrifices throughout Leviticus and Numbers. I commend these reflections to you. And the more you read this, the more you'll see, like, oh, this is a fulfillment of God's promise. And these special animals were, were a part of these people's lives. In fact, you remember the Passover lamb for a time was actually brought into the home. I don't know what you would do with a lamb in your house, probably leave them outside. But they would leave these things, and, and, and as they were living along, raising up their flock, there was always the special, the best, the, the first of these things, the, the highest quality. And, and they would set it aside to know this is going to be the sacrifice. This is going to be the offering, the right and good sacrifice that God and his glory deserves. And they would live in light of this. They would go along having around them a, a first and best. This one is special. This one belongs to the Lord. I mean, the whole earth and belongs to the Lord in its fullness, but, but this, this special, the best, is a reminder that we belong to God and this belongs to the Lord. And what we see here is the indictment is that they had a half-hearted response to God delivering them out of exile. They were brought out of exile, given another chance, and they responded half-heartedly. And so this is the question that I believe it leaves for you and for me. Who or what gets your first and best efforts? Who or what gets your first and best efforts? Do you give to the Lord what is best? Or do you give to the Lord what is left? Because the answer to that question is a powerful indicator what you genuinely love and whether or not you have experienced the unmerited favor of God. What gets your best efforts? Where does your first money go to? Where does your downtime go? What do you do with extra the sacrificial system that they were living in included putting aside the best so that they would constantly have daily reminders that God is glorious. God has delivered us out of Egypt and, and now we are free and we are recipients of his promise. And at this point, these people are just unimpressed by that. And so therefore, it began to be visible in their life. Who or what gets your first and best efforts? Malachi tells us that that is a theological question. Because who or what gets your best efforts reveals what you genuinely love. It reveals what you were genuinely devoted to. It, de it reveals what you genuinely and deeply honor. And these offerings that were meant to be set aside, that these people were beginning to hear the language, they, they would offer like, eh, you know, like, just not the best they would offer like a sick animal. The Lord doesn't really deserve it. And the indictment, notice, is, is I'll say a couple of a quick observations. The indictment was to the, to the leaders. Did you catch that? It was to the priests. And so th this is 
especially important for us as Christians who now believe because of Christ that we are a priesthood of all believers. Peter tells us that now we are, a, a, we are like a royal priesthood, that we are now intercessors for the world. And so he indicts them, you, the people who have responsibility. So maybe at the very least, this is meant to call our attention. If, if, you're, if you're in this room and, and you have influence over your gospel community, if you're, if you're in this room and, and you have influence over a family or friends, you, you, are the, you are an intercessor. You have influence. You are a leader. People are looking to you. You are leading them somewhere. And Malachi asks the question, where are you taking them? To what are you pointing? The people who live closely to you, what would they say you are genuinely devoted to? Is it God and his mercy that flows out of you? Or is it some lesser thing? And what they're saying is, the indictment is that your bad sacrifices say something wrong about who God is. Atoning sacrifices were offerings for sin. They, they pointed to God's atoning forgiveness. We are sinners in need of an atoning sacrifice. To sacrifice wrongly said something wrong about who God was. And so I'll ask it again. What is special in your life? What gets the bulk of your attention? What do you wake up thinking about? And friend, the answer to that will reveal what you value. The second thing, notice, kind of in, in the middle of that, did you hear one of the indictments? It said, would you do that to the, would you present that to the governor, verse 8? Did you hear that? This is, this is no joking matter for us. I would say, in many ways, this is, this is a challenge for us even today. We often give to political movements, political parties, political figures, what we owe to God. I've asked this question for many people, like, which would be easier for you, to leave your church or to leave your political party? And the answer to that question will tell you a lot about how you're living right now. It'll tell you a lot about what you're really devoted to. And so you've heard me harp on this, this, this kind of movement of, of Christian nationalism that's kind of taken root over the last couple of decades. Maybe it has been, it's just kind of come to the surface. You're like, why are you so worried about that? This is it. Because Malachi says, look, hey, look out. You might actually give your first fruits to the governor. And meanwhile, like, give God what is left. And so, man, I'm, I'm all for, right, I'm, I'm all for... Fourth of July and Memorial Day, God bless America. I love her. But she's not a satisfactory hope. She just isn't. And all I would say is, let's love her, let's care for her, right? But let's be aware of the temptation Malachi points out here to, to replace God's kingdom with our own earthly kingdom. I, ho I, think, I hope this is a timely encouragement. We're like, oh, thank God. He's, he, our devotion belongs to him. His kingdom's come his will will be done. Let's not settle for lesser, like lesser kind of knockoffs. The offerings that we're meant to live kind of flowing out of us are meant to flow from a generosity spurred by experiencing the love of God. Remember I told you the self-centeredness that's exposed? kind of poked at the moralism underneath this, kind of, kind of poked at the, you know, the, like the, 
ultimately the therapeutic nature of this and the self-centeredness is also poked out here. Look at this. The glory of God's electing and redeeming love is shared by the nations. The nations. Now do you realize why nationalism can be sometimes dangerous? It tells a lie about God's love. God's special people are amongst the nations. God's glory is going to be shared by the nations. You and I can't contain it. It's too big. It's too great. Every tribe, tongue, and language will be gathered around the throne. It's bigger than you can possibly imagine. And we're daily having our eyes open to it. This glory is too good to keep a secret. And so when we talk about the values of our church being the the good news of God's love, the community that that creates, and the mission that we're on, see, this is where it comes from. God's love, his redeeming love, is too great to keep a secret. The Lord of hosts, it says here. God is the conqueror. Literally, the Lord of armies. It's in verse 4, 6, 8, 9, 10, 11, 13, and 14. God is the conqueror. God will overcome. God will achieve the victory. As we reflect on the love of God, we realize that God is the covenant God over all the armies. And this is in Malachi over 20 times. This, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies. Friend, God will be the conqueror. God will win over sin and death. And God will do this in such a way that the whole world will see it. You see the very end? I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared where? Among the nations. So friend, hear that also as an indictment. Are we living in light of God's redemptive word for us such that the nations are being invited into it? Or is following Jesus just simply something that you want to invite people who look, talk, and act like you into? Are we living in light of God's redeeming? That he would choose, he chose us, us, he chose us. Are we living in light of that such that the nations get the overflow of our excitement and joy? So friend, let's reflect on the love of God. Let's repent of our half-heartedness. Let's see the Lord as our conqueror. Let's offer good and right sacrifices because they tell a better story about Jesus. Jesus exercises authority like the Lord of hosts here over demons, diseases, storms and waves, depravity, and even the grave. He will conquer all of these things among all the nations. He will win the hearts of his people through his victory. And this story is greater for the Israelites than just themselves and for you and me for just ourselves. And he invites them at the very end. Did you hear that? Like, I'm doing something and the nations will be invited into it. Friend, look, God is inviting us back into the story of his greatness. He has invited you and me to play a part in the story of his greatness. He's inviting you and I to delight in him, to trust him to give ourselves completely over to him, abandoning our our own side stories, right? Doing away with the lesser stories for the sake of the glory that will be shared amongst the nations. Remember what I told you? That God comes to be with us and for us in our groaning, our complaining, our mouthiness. Because of Jesus Christ, we have received God's love. 
We've been shown grace in spite of our dishonor. We're, we're a dishonorable, disrespectful group of people. And now we've been invited into God's glory among the nations. Friend, I have good news. As half-hearted as you and I are, as disrespectful and insolent as you and I tend to be, he has never been half-hearted toward us. He has never once been half-hearted in his grace and love toward us. As we prepare to celebrate Christmas, might we live in light of this good news. As half-hearted and as mouthy and disrespectful as we are, he has never been anything other but faith and unfaithful. He has only ever loved us with his whole heart. Might we respond to this in faith and expectation? Let's pray together. God, thank you so much that you are good toward us. Uh, you are consistently kind to us. You are merciful to us when we least deserve it. I thank you for these words of the prophet Malachi that remind us that, that even though we are faithless, you remain faithful. Even though we wander, you remain steadfast. Even though our true affections and adoration are, are revealed in our own lives, you still call us back to yourself. So might today be a day that we look to you, we trust you, we, we lean on you. Might today we confess that our half-hearted devotion is, is unworthy of you. And yet, might we receive the grace knowing that you have never been half-hearted towards us. You've never been apathetic towards us. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.